Welcome to this special Brewery Pro podcast looking at the subject of gluten. Over the last 20 years, we've seen a significant increase in consumers who avoid gluten or identify as being intolerant of gluten, as well as growing awareness of celiac disease itself. With traditionally made beers containing gluten, this has seen a rapidly developing market for beers that appeal to those who are looking at a gluten-reduced lifestyle. However, it's a complex topic. Australia maintains a different definition of gluten-free to the United States and Europe, and confusion exists about the meaning of gluten-reduced in relation to gluten-modified beers, and also the efficacy of traditional testing methods. With business legal liability, not to mention the health of consumers, aka your customers, hinging on brewers' understanding and correctly using the various terms and understanding the limits of testing, Brewery Pro wanted to provide brewers with a comprehensive primer on gluten and brewing. My guest, Professor Michelle Colgrave, is an internationally recognised researcher in the field. She leads the Food and Agricultural Proteonomics team at Edith Cowan University and the CSIRO, using technology to identify key proteins that will benefit Australia's food and agriculture industries and improve human health. Unfortunately, I learned just after this interview concluded, and not from Professor Colgrave, that she has this week been recognised for a major breakthrough in the analysis of gluten. The research that was awarded has led to the development of an ultra-low gluten barley, now known as Kabari, which is used in the production of gluten-free cereals, beers and food products, with all the nutritional benefits of whole grains while being safe to be enjoyed by celiac sufferers. Importantly, Professor Colgrave is a great communicator of her expertise, as you will hear, making the complexities of this topic very approachable, even to the layperson. Professor Michelle Colgrove, welcome to this Brewery Pro podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I guess the first thing, we want to talk a lot about gluten and beer and uh, gluten intolerance and celiac. But before we do, um, we might start with uh, telling a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what, what your background is. Yeah, so I'm an analytical biochemist by training. So that means that I, um, I basically uh, studied science at university. Um, at first, I started looking at DNA and then I switched gears to start studying proteins. Um, so since then, um, I have been um, working for CSIRO for the last 13 years. Um, I've also recently joined Edith Cowan University and my research group has been uh, focused on detecting gluten specifically as a type of protein that's present in many foods and, and of course in beer. So and let's, again, we're speaking to professional brewers who have a pretty good understanding of science, but obviously not... Um, necessarily to the level, that, in fact, absolutely not to the level that you are. So let, let's just step back and uh, you, you just said gluten is a protein. But let's just go back to um, basics and what is a protein? Yes, so a protein is um, essentially a building block of life, really. Um, so what we have is we have DNA, which is our blueprint or, you know, the, the architect's drawing. Um, and then our bodies make proteins, but um, so do plants. Um, so in the case of wheat and barley and rye in particular, they make these um, plant storage proteins um, and these are the gluten proteins so gluten is this generic term that refers to this these seed storage proteins that exist in these grains so they are there in the grain as a nutrient source um, for that plant to germinate 
So the brewers and the maltsters amongst um, this conversation will, will know that they rely on breakdown of protein um, during germination um, that occurs during the malting process. Um, and that is essentially the um, fuel source for some of these great flavor components. The, and another term we use is peptides. Peptides is the small part, or it's like a string of amino acids um, that are related to the protein. So they're the small pieces of the protein that you end up with in your beer at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, proteins are these longer stretches of amino acids. Okay, so if we're looking at you know, anyone that's been in, at, at a gym, they've heard of proteins and things like that. Gluten is a protein, but what makes gluten different from, say, some of the proteins that you want if you're um, you know, meat proteins or some of the other proteins? Proteins fuel our body, and the reason... Um like, well, we have to get some of the amino acids from our food sources. So we can't make all the amino acids. So we can intake other nutrients that contain carbon and nitrogen and other elements. We can make some of our own amino acids, but we also have to ingest some of them. Um, and so in our diets, we're ingesting these proteins and then we are able to utilize those amino acids. Um, now, that's what we want normally for protein. But in the case of gluten, um, they contain a different balance of amino acids. So they have a high proportion of glutamine and a high proportion of proline. And it's the combination of those that make them somewhat indigestible to some people. And, and why is that? So how, how do the proteins break down in our body? What, what is the process there? Yeah, so when we um, ingest any food, we obviously um, chew it first and we produce saliva and that contains um, an enzyme called amylase. Um, that usually breaks down some of the sugars. Um, then it goes down into our gut and we have the action of a, a range of other enzymes. We also have acid in our stomach. And so the acid and the pepsin, which is an enzyme also present in our stomach, starts to break down that protein. Then it passes through to our intestine. And in our intestine, um, we then have another suite of enzymes, trypsin, chymotrypsin, and these other enzymes that then further work to break down that protein. So the end result is we want to have amino acids that can pass across the, the lumen and go into our body and supply those amino acids for us to make new protein. Okay. And what is it about somebody who has, and we might speak about uh, celiac disease, um, is that the correct way to refer to it? Is it, or is it just being a celiac? Or Yeah, yeah, so you would either say that they have celiac disease or, yeah, that they are a celiac patient or, yep. yeah, either way is fine. Um, and there is there's celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disorder, and then there's some other aspects which are um, gluten intolerance, and that may be due to gluten. Sometimes it's the other proteins that are found in grains okay um, but then there's also people who just don't feel well when they when they eat products that contain gluten okay so let's talk about uh, celiac disease someone who, who, who is in that um, category what is it about them uh, that gluten influ affects so as I was talking about digestion firstly, um, because gluten contains these stretches of amino acids that are a bit more intolerant or indigestible. So normally a protein might break down to give just those amino acids on their own. Um, in the case of gluten, it often, even in, in, in anyone, people without the disease, there will be stretches of these peptides, stretches of amino acids that are not completely broken down. 
So in someone who doesn't have celiac disease, that won't have any effect. Mm -hmm. It'll just pass through the body um, and there's no trigger as such. But those people who do have celiac disease, they, their body will react to it. So there's antibodies that will come in and say, okay, well, this is, this is not what I'm expecting. This is like a foreign thing in my body and I'm going to trigger my immune system. So you go into a state of inflammation okay. and then that can start, those antibodies actually start to damage the body themselves. So you start seeing um, a thing called villus atrophy, which is basically when the lining of the intestine is, um, they have these finger-like projections that are normally there to help absorb nutrients and they, they essentially get worn away. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have a whole range of symptoms for people who are true celiacs and that can be anything from bloating, um, you know, to stomach cramping, to nausea and, and a whole range of other symptoms. How about when you start moving into the, I guess there's a spectrum of gluten tolerance. You're talking about people who were intolerant of gluten, but then also there are a range of other proteins that are present in grain, but it's not gluten being the culprit. Yeah, so there's a whole range of different proteins. So I mentioned before about in your stomach, in your intestine, you have these natural enzymes that break down protein. Um, there's also a class of uh, proteins that exist in grains that are there as um, defense molecules against pests so of course we the plant has to defend itself it can't run away so what it does is it, it has its own armory and so these proteins that it expresses um, are there to the stomach comes uh, these not the stomach comes along that would be an interesting perspective <laughs> on it uh, the insect comes along um, has a bit of a chew on the leaf and says and gets a bit of a tummy ache itself so it's not surprising that sometimes when we eat these plants that we might also get the similar symptoms. So there's these proteins called um, alpha amylase trypsin inhibitors. So they are proteins that inhibit the action of amylase, what's normally in your saliva, and it also inhibits the action of trypsin, which is in your intestine. So the job they do is by stopping those enzymes from breaking the proteins down, that can actually um, mean that you don't have full de uh, degradation of proteins as well. Okay, and what does that do to the body? So again, this can lead to similar symptoms that you might see in celiac disease. So you might have some of those gastrointestinal distress symptoms, but they are not necessarily um, causing the same affliction as you get with celiac disease. Now, before we move on to some of the non-gluten grains, um, there are grains that brewers use to make gluten-free beers. Are some of those other proteins in them so for example if you were able to take, have a gluten-free beer um, for the gluten would some of those proteins still crop up in a gluten-free yeah those classes of proteins are, are generally what we call ubiquitous so present across many different plant sources um, they are different in some so um, and sometimes it's a combination of, of different proteins together that will cause a, a reaction um, so I think there is there is a definite link between um, sort of the amount of these uh, these other proteins in the same grains as um, as you get gluten from. Okay. And so, what they typically termed it is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So, still the same grain types, but maybe different proteins or different things that are triggering similar symptoms. Okay. So, someone who is in that category of um, in intolerance would still be able to have a gluten-free beer. We'll explain what a gluten-free beer is. Yeah. Um, but they, they, So they would be able to have a beer that's made without barley or wheat or some of those and would probably not suffer those other um, symptoms. It is. It's 
Yeah, look, I'm not going to give a definitive answer no. on that one, but it's, it, it is possible and probable, but um, they, there could still be lesser amounts of them, but they may not have as acute a symptom, for instance. Um, but yeah, it's, there hasn't been enough research to fully understand how other grains may have um, similar type effects. Okay. Now, let's talk about gluten-free and gluten-reduced. So we, we've seen a number of brewers that have uh, started making beers with non-traditional brewing grains um, that are gluten-free. They're able to label their beer gluten-free. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So before we get into which is gluten-free and gluten-reduced, what I'd probably just define is what does gluten-free mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So... Um, and because and, does that change from Australia yeah, and North going, America and Europe. Yeah, I was exactly going to go there too. So um, so if you're in North America or if you're in Europe, um, it's, it's a little bit clearer um, in that gluten-free um, is termed as the 20 part per million or 20 milligrams per kilo threshold. So that means in every million molecules, essentially, only 20 of them can be gluten. So that's the limit that's been set according to the clinical studies that have been undertaken. And that's generally deemed as safe. So you just need to be below that. Um, and the reason we need a threshold... So, so at, at, at that 20 parts per million, um, the, the body's able to process that or it's not going to trigger people that are gluten intolerant? Yeah, it's, set for, it's generally set for 99% of people to be safe. Okay. Um, so it'll, there's always going to be someone who's more sensitive and may still get a response. But yeah, it's generally, they, they try to set it at that 99% safety level. Um, now, okay, so where I was at is that the, you've got the threshold um, that's been set based on clinical relevance. And the reason that it's important is because there's always going to be a small amount of these grains entering food systems mm -hmm. just because they're grown together or they may be transported in similar trucks or, you know, they may be manufactured in facilities. There, there's always a small amount, but it needs to be a very small amount. It's got to be clinically relevant, but also practical. Um, so, yeah, so in most jurisdictions, 20 part per million is the level. Um, in Australia, a gluten-free means um, that it contains no gluten. And that means that it can't contain wheat, barley or rye. Mm -hmm. So we have a, essentially a zero threshold, so no detectable gluten. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? There's pros and cons. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it is a good thing for, um, I guess, from the perspective of... Um, if it contains any detectable um, gluten, then um, it can't be labelled in that way and that means that it's going to be safe for someone who's a true celiac. Um, but then the problem with that is that you could have this small incidence of very low levels that aren't going to be harmful to most and it's harder for manufacturers to adhere to that very strict limit and thereby product availability may not be as great. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two sides to that story. So what does gluten reduced mean then? So gluten reduced is, um, so there's also another term that they call low, low level gluten or... Um, and is this in Australia or is this in... So, so there's different jurisdictions as well, and okay. this might be it might be set at 100 part per million, or it might be set at 200. So there's different levels that are applied, and this is where some of the confusion comes in. But gluten reduced means that you've got to you started with a material that contains in the, in the case of I'll just talk about beer for the moment, yep. um, barley in this case. But what they've done is they've applied a treatment of some sort to remove that barley gluten. 
So in many instances, um, you can make a product um, like, for instance, in wheat, um, you can make a wheat starch where you can purify the starch out, removing all of the protein, and you can end up with a starch that's actually completely free of gluten mm -hmm. and therefore will be completely safe for anyone. But in the case of um, gluten reduced as they apply it to beer, um, typically they may add an enzyme and that enzyme is added um, during the brewing stage and that is to either degrade the gluten. Um, there are other enzymes they use that are actually there to transform the gluten into a different form and then they can sometimes filter it out. Mm -hmm. So that's the process. It's, it's, it's a means of reducing the gluten from the, the level that it would be. But it breaks the gluten protein down, but it doesn't remove it. Is that correct? Or it degrades it in a way that it doesn't affect the body? Is, is that, I guess, what's the outcome there? So, so um, yeah, so it's reduced in terms of its testable presence, but is it still there in a form that can affect the body? So I might go back to the brewing process for a moment sure. and just talk about um, what happens to gluten during um, natural beer, like, it's not natural, it's not quite natural, but uh, routine, during a, a routine yeah, brewing process. Um, so gluten is automatically reduced during the brewing process. So often it will precipitate and so then can be removed um, during different stages um, or it can crosslink and that, that, that crosslinking will cause it to precipitate. And some of it's just degraded by the natural enzymes that are present within barley grains. So these proteases that exist, so when I talk about protease, I mean an enzyme, so I give them interchangeably, um, but their job is to break down proteins. So some of it is broken down just during the course of um, brewing. The, um, then during, um, when they add these enzymes, um, then the, the role of the enzyme is to actually break up the gluten proteins and it's, it's targeted specifically at gluten because it's, these enzymes are typically what we call a prolyl endopeptidase and that's a long word for an enzyme that cuts at prolines. Okay. And if you remember back to the start, I said that gluten was full of proline. Yep. And so its job is to break up these prolines and therefore remove or um, shrink down the size of the protein, chop it up into lots of pieces. So if you imagine it as a long string of amino acids, then it's going to chop at each of these prolines and you should end up with smaller pieces um, that are cut at those sites. Now, in many cases, that might be enough to reduce the level to what might be safe. But in other instances, it won't be safe because there's still a level there that people can respond to. And when you say instances, are we talking about particular people and their susceptibility to it? Or is it um, if it's not used correctly or what's so, the instance? Yeah, a little, little bit of both there. So there's a, um, with, any, with any of these um, diseases, there's a spectrum of sensitivity in the population. So while one person might not be able to... Um, Acute, have any symptoms at all, the next person um, will have you know, a severe reaction. Um, and that's due to the sensitivity to the, the particular proteins. Um, so there's that, but then you've also got the combination of if you don't apply the enzyme in, in a way that will cut all of the gluten, um, then it's going to remain. And what, we, what the literature and the scientific studies have shown so far is that there is a significant amount of gluten that remains just in, in sizes and um, forms that can't really be detected by the current standard methods. 
Which brings us to the to the next thing. So you, we've got this process, but then testing is a whole other kettle um, of, of proteins, for, for want of a better word. So um, how do we test for gluten in, in something like beer? So the current method for testing for gluten is what we call an ELISA. And ELISA stands for an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay. But it basically makes use of an antibody. Mm-hmm. So we make an antibody... Um, scientifically essentially um, we make up these antibodies that will react specifically to different types of proteins in this case gluten so in a standard food where there's not been any um, fermentation um, then we can use especially in in grains that are whole then we can use what we call a sandwich elizer and that's that's a very straightforward technique and it works really well um, in wheat where you have wheat is the standard that they use to calibrate this assay and they can detect wheat really well. Mm-hmm. It becomes a little bit more challenging when you switch gears from wheat to barley because it gives a different response, but um, so that still can be accounted for. But when we start dealing with beer or any product that's been fermented, um, what I've said already is that during brewing, you have this breakdown that's occurring during brewing anyway. So you've already got these um, pieces of protein uh, that aren't intact anymore. And so the antibody is like, it's like a lock and key mechanism. So essentially the piece of gluten um, needs to be the key that you insert into the lock in order to unlock that and get an answer. Yep. So with that, um, if, you, if your key doesn't quite fit the lock, then you're not going to get the result. So what's happened is you've got this breakdown of the protein already and so it's kind of changed the shape of the key and then you've, you're applying this enzyme and then it might um, again change the shape of the key a bit more and just not be able to unlock and yep. get an answer. So in many cases you will have a fragment that can't be detected by this antibody anymore because the antibody is specific to a particular site on the protein. Okay. But the rest of the protein might be there. It just becomes invisible. Um, another thing that can occur... Effectively invisible. Yeah, um, yeah. As opposed to not being there. That's right. Yep. That's right. So it's invisible to the test. Yep. And another thing that can happen is that you have all of these other great things going on during the process. So we, we know that we... Um, you know, during during malting, there's a kilning step. Um, there's glycation that occurs, which is essentially this sugar-based reaction. Some of those sugars can end up on the proteins as well. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they can essentially hide that site that the antibody would normally bind to. And I guess for all of these ways that the protein can be hidden in testing, it's not hidden from our body if it's present in the liquid. That's right. So sometimes um, that, that breakdown will be sufficient to hide it from the body and not, um, not have those reactions. But um, what we think is that for the most part, the... The antigen site, this is the part that the antibody binds to, the key as such, um, will have been removed or decreased, but the rest of the pieces of gluten still exist. And so I guess that takes me to my research where we've been using an alternative technique, um, and that's another long name, <laughs> liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, or LCMS. So I'll use LCMS for <laughs> short. Um But it's a different technique altogether. So instead of having to rely on an antibody to see it, we just use this mass spectrometer to directly measure that protein or those peptide fragments. 
So we just um, we take the beers and we do a little bit of treatment, but then we um, we essentially apply them to this uh, technique, and then we can directly measure what is present. So we measure we measure the peptides, um, these small pieces that still exist, and then we also uh, look at some of the proteins as well. How expensive is that um, process? So the, the process, well, it's more about the infrastructure, I guess, because you're not going to have a brewer who's going to have a mass spectrometer in their, in their garage. It's no. just not going to happen. And, and I presume that because of the process to make low-gluten beers or gluten-reduced beers, you would need to test every batch. You do, and that's one of the things we've seen is that when we use this new technique to look at batch-to-batch variation, it's really variable um, because... Even though these enzymes cut at these prolines, um, they're really not as specific as some of the other enzymes that we use for science purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get a lot of variation, and you also get a lot of variation just through the brewing process. Yep. So with all that variability, um, you have to ma- you you absolutely have to measure batch to batch, and you may use a different batch of the enzyme, you know, this time, or you've used it for a slightly longer time, or perhaps the temperature was different. And that's and that's the interesting thing is that these enzymes that brewers use to create gluten reduced beers weren't developed to reduce gluten; they were for um, a, a range of um, aesthetic uses in in the brew house. That's right. So. Um, one of the enzymes was initially introduced because they wanted to break or remove haze. Mm. Now haze is quite trendy these days, but <laughs> yeah. it wasn't always. And so because it removed the proteins or it denatured the proteins that created the haze. Yeah. So but you, the byproduct was that those proteins. That's right. So what happens is the um, the haze is actually the um, reaction between proteins and polyphenols. So these these two come together and they form that the haze that you would see. And so if you can break down the protein it also breaks down these protein polyphenol complexes and thereby clarifies your beer um, so that's that's how they were initially utilized um, but they haven't really been optimized to specifically break down gluten it was it was more of a side finding and and an application and the the challenge is that when you're using these techniques, that's great. And you, if, if you've got a tool that will effectively measure how well you've applied that enzyme and that making sure that, you know, uh, once you've applied the enzyme, that there is really a reduction in gluten. And you might be reducing the intact gluten, but you can't measure with the current test whether the small pieces um, that, are re- that remain, you just can't see them. Yep. And what we still don't know is these small pieces that remain, we don't know exactly how toxic they are because there are so many of them and they're all so different. Yeah. And by toxic, you mean inflammatory or yeah. sort of affecting people who are intolerant to them? That's right. There's also evidence coming out of um, some of the researchers in the US who have um, taken essentially the um, T cells from people who have celiac disease and then... And they've applied these gluten-reduced beers to say, does this stimulate a T-cell response? So this is essentially, it's a um, a, a lab-based uh, method to say, will this likely induce the same response in a patient? And um, in some cases it does. Um, but we also um, have explored, I guess, the, the peptides themselves and looked at them to say, well, we know which part of the protein um, theoretically would create a response and we've seen those parts still present in beers. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I, at the end of the day, um, what is your recommendation to, I guess, beer drinkers and you know, as expressed to brewers? So what should they be, how should they be labelling beers that maybe use traditional grains but they've treated to, to reduce the, the, the gluten? How should yeah. they be communicating so, that? So um, you will have seen that in the US they've moved to a position where they use uh, things like crafted to remove gluten or um, sounds you know, like gluten a very marketing reduced. term, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a scientific yeah. term. So, so that these are uh, these are at least um, provide some transparency in that they, that they're not saying that they're gluten free. What they're saying is that they started with gluten and they've treated them in a means to try to reduce the gluten. And I think that that is the minimum requirement we need because you need um, for the consumer for it to be clear to the consumer that there there is a possible risk. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they should, if they if they decide to try them, um, they should do that under the, you know, the guidance of their medical practitioner um, so that they can monitor the long-term health effects. Because even though someone could drink a beer or two and perhaps not get acute symptoms, we don't know what the long-term chronic effects would be. Mm-hmm. So it really needs to be done under the guidance of your medical practitioner. And how about gluten-free? Yeah, so gluten-free, um, if they are endogenously gluten-free, that means that they are made from things like millets or sorghums or um, oats and quinoa. There's a whole range <laughs> of different grains that have been used um, to make uh, gluten-free beers. And in those cases, um, they should be gluten-free simply um, because they don't contain barley, they don't contain wheat, they don't contain rye. So, so they should be no risk to consumers. Now, you're also working or involved in a couple of uh, projects to breed low-gluten strains of traditional brewing grains. How, how's that research coming along? Yeah, so um, I was really fortunate to work with a group of scientists at CSIRO who took a different approach to this and said, OK, well, could we actually remove the gluten from the grain itself? And so what they did was they, they looked around the world um, to see what varieties existed and then they worked on barley. So in the first instance, they found um, there's four classes of gluten that ex- uh, exist in barley um, and they, they're simply called B, C, D and it should be G, but they, they call it gamma because <laughs> we're scientists. But they found, they found a variety that didn't contain the B Hordines, which is one class. Um, then they also found a variety that didn't have the C. So they crossed those to create what we call um, a double null. And then they crossed it again with this D null. Um, and so they essentially eliminated um, something like 98% of the gluten that would normally be in barley. And so then what we did was we used this mass spectrometry technique to ensure that the grain that was being produced um, actually really did not have the gluten there, so to confirm that. And we also used it um, along the brooding process because this is this is not genetically modified, this is not gene edited or any of these other techniques, it's just a selective breeding program, taking one um, grain and crossing it with another. And so we were able to produce this barley, it's now known as Kabari, and it is um, gluten-free according to the US and European standards. Okay. But not by the Australian standards because it contains barley. Right. Okay. Do we need to work on the food standards to, to be able to use it here, or do we need to come up with a whole new? So there, there has been some review of what what the um, the gluten 
every um, standard should look like in Australia and that review is ongoing and we may see that that is changed in time to come in line with what we see overseas. Um, in the meantime, I guess what we um, it, it's still possible to use this grain in brewing. It's just that it's just a matter of how you market it. And we have got a couple of examples. Um, you know, I think Bent spoke in Canberra were one of were one of the brewers who actually went in and tried uh, the Kabari grain and and produced a really great beer using it. I'll uh, I'll follow them up to um, re- report back on that. Has there been any testing done about how it? works in the brew house if there's any difference to the, uh, you know, the, the com- other components of the grain? Yeah, so one of the, um, one of the initial challenges in the first crosses was that once we removed um, these proteins, and we're removing up to 50% of the grain protein, um, was that the grain itself was smaller and it had like this sort of shrunken, um, sort of like a hollow. Um, so instead of a smooth, plump grain, it was actually hollowed out. And that meant um, that it was initially created some problems with filtration. And so um, through a series of additional um, breeding lines, they were managed to increase the grain size back up um, to a point where it didn't create those problems anymore. So they, you know, that was seen as an early industry issue and they managed to um, fix it over the, the coming brook crosses. And, and for all of your uh, many expertise uh, areas, um, brewing may not be one of them, but uh, how, how was, with protein being important to, for example, head retention in, in a lot of beers, how, was, how, how did uh, the head retention get affected? Well, that's something that I, um, I do get to test a little. <laughs> <laughs> so, and my, my research groups actually don't mind this part of the job <laughs> because um, we do open many beers in the lab. You are a beer drinker. <laughs> I am a beer drinker. Okay. And we do open many beers in the lab and we do sit there and, and, and have a look at some of these things because um, they all do perform very differently. Uh, yeah, so one thing is it does pour quite well and you do get the head, but it's not retained for as long. Okay. So, yeah, you do start to see some of those things. But if you're, if you're, I guess, someone with celiac disease or a gluten intolerance, I think, guess uh, head head retention is not your biggest issue. Uh, well, the, the number of people that just are desperate, you know, they, they love beer and that they miss out. And uh, and how about cost? Um, how is cost affected with Kabari? Like, is it being grown at a scale that? that the cost is relatively comparable to a traditional barley? Oh, look, it would. I don't have the, the numbers off the top of my head, but it would be grown as a premium because you do have to make sure that you're keeping the other barley out. So with that, you have to have closed loop, um, you know, growing and contract growing. So um, you can, it's not going to be directly comparable. But again, um, these are products that typically... Uh, fetch somewhat of a premium because of the fact that you have to do the additional testing. Um, there are a number of steps along any of these um, free from foods where there, where there is a requirement for additional testing and to ensure product safety. So, um, so yeah, there will be a, a, a slight cost increase. This is one of those areas that we could have talked for hours, but we, we might bring this particular class to a close. Is there anything else that you uh, think that brewers need to know about gluten, gluten-free and gluten-reduced within the context of this conversation? Look, I think it's just all about providing um, as much information to the consumer as possible. And that's where that, you know, what they label um, the products as is really, really important. Um, Because you need to be able to understand that, yep, okay, they've used an enzyme here. Um, I I don't quite understand what an enzyme is, perhaps. But it started with barley in it and, and you know, we've done a 
they've taken their best effort and they've used the testing that's available. Um, we hope that um, the types of testing will improve over time and um, be made available to everyone. But at this time, I think it's about just providing transparency and labelling. And the brewers should understand the limits of what when they read test results, what those test results are actually telling them. Yeah, that's right. And so if you know that you know, you've know you got a, a means of measurement that is going to be accurate and reliable, that's fine. But we do know that there are some challenges to the current means of testing and that information probably isn't passed along to brewers. Um, I don't know how many brewers are avid readers of scientific literature, but um, certainly we've been um, trying to disseminate that information broadly because it is a, it is a challenge. Wonderful. Professor Michelle Colgrave, thank you very much for joining us on uh, this Brewery Pro podcast and we look forward to uh, following the rest of your uh, fascinating studies uh, closely. Thank you very much for having me. You can download a full transcript of this conversation with links to other information in the show notes to this episode. Brewery Pro content is presented by Brews News and is designed for the brewing industry professional. If you have any suggestions for topics that we can cover, email us at cheers at brewsnews.com.au. Thank you for listening.